Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. A voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth away, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. This passage is about comfort. It's what it says on the tin. It's what appears right at the beginning in verse 1. But we often think of comfort in personal and subjective terms. We think about comfort as to what it means to me. We could consider what it means to dwell without pain and brokenness. We long for physical and emotional ease. And especially in this time of year, considering the busyness and trouble that this season engenders, we can wonder uh, what uh, such a message hopes to accomplish when we think about comfort. Perhaps we even look forward to the time when all the visitors are going to leave your house and you can have a moment of peace to yourself. We speak of Christmas comfort, but what do we mean? For often our language adopts the definition of the world, perhaps a feeling of benevolence during the winter solstice. And these ideas certainly ought not to intrude upon our minds as Christians. For our comfort arises at the apprehension of God's grace. And therefore, we ought to ask ourselves, what is the grace that we are to recognize at Christmas? What is the grace that we are to see in the baby born in Bethlehem? And the grace of Christmas is therefore largely proleptic. That is, it looks to the future. It is a baby that is born in a stable that promises what that baby will accomplish as a man. It looks forward to the cross and the resurrection. And yet the unique timing of the Incarnation and its, uh, that nature, its anticipation informs us of uh, that joy that ought to match our state. While we have yet uh, fully received the grace of justification and adoption, we also look forward to the state of glorification. And so we understand the tension that was there apparent at the birth of Christ. And therefore, we ought to look and find God's comfort here. We see it here in Isaiah. We see him also in a state of tension where things are good, but it's going to get worse. But there's a promise that things are going to get better. The word of Isaiah to his generation means, therefore, much to us today. And I submit that we learn at least three things from this passage, that we rest in God's comfort, that we recognize God's glory, and that we rely on on God's word. We rest in God's comfort. We recognize God's glory and we rely 
upon God's word. To understand the importance of these words, we must first remember the context. Uh, chapter 39 tells us the story of Hezekiah's sinful boasting to the emissaries from Babylon. And Isaiah prophesies that the king, uh, because of his faithlessness to the Lord, uh, the exile would take place, but not during his reign. In that word of comfort that comes to him, the Lord depicts himself, himself as both the speaker and the judge. Here is where we see a difference in translations. In verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. The ASV reads, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And without the next verse, many would miss the fact that this word comfort is not a noun, but a verb. It is an imperative. It is a plural imperative that the Lord is commanding a group of people to actively seek to comfort a nation that has just been given bad news. Especially, it is a word to Isaiah. It is the word that God commands them to do. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sin. He instructs the prophets to speak to the nation or to the heart tenderly, compassionately, especially to Jerusalem here, the heart of the nation that will soon go into exile. Uh, speak comfortably unto Jerusalem, that city that will suffer complete annihilation uh, through the captivity in Babylon. The message is clear from the rest of the verse what the comfort is to say to, that there is an end to the exile. Even though the nation uh, will suffer exile, it will not be destroyed. The exile will not last forever. There will be a period of restitution. The judge speaks the word of comfort. The judge says that she has received of her, of the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. That her warfare is ended. Literally, the Hebrew says that her enemy has been filled, her army has been filled. The completion of a military service. A no longer a need of war soldiers because the war is over. The enemies have been defeated that Israel can rest safely in their cities. The iniquity of the people is seen in warfare terminology. Israel has suffered this perpetual war ever since they left Egypt. They have battled with their idolatrous past. They have battled with their addiction to idolatry. They have battled against that sin that erupts spectacularly at the base of Mount Sinai in the Golden Calf. The Lord names it when he declares them to be a stiff-necked people. That iniquity being pardoned is a part of the new covenant that God promises to them in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. 
Jeremiah in this passage talks about that first covenant, talks about their being delivered from Egypt, talks about their warfare against their idolatry, talks about their, uh, their failure in that. Though he was a husband to them, they were the unfaithful wife, and they broke the covenant. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The, the thing about the new covenant is that it's based upon the old covenant and uses the language of the old covenant. It's just a, a, an acceleration, an enhancement of the old covenant. Instead of the law being written on tablets of stone, now the law is being written in their hearts. Instead of the law being something external to them, it is internal to them. But the essence of the covenant is still the same. I will be their God. They will be my people. And they shall teach no, no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. They will all have a knowledge of me. There will be no more uh, argument within the people of God that they need to know God. For the true people of God will be those who know them. And this is the result at the end of verse 34 of Jeremiah 31. And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The exact same thing that Isaiah says here in verse 2. That her iniquity is pardoned. The justification for the Lord's pardon is seen in the punishment. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all their sins. This does not mean an injustice. He hasn't punished them twice. Rather, it reflects the severity of their punishment. After Israel greatly sinned against her Lord, he has recompensed her for the sin. And that recompense is not the exile. It is Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but it is not for nothing that the prophet says, Go and speak comfort to Jerusalem. For the Jerusalem would be the city where the double for all her sins would be accomplished. Israel had no idea when Isaiah wrote this what God intended, what it would take for Israel's sin of idolatry to be forgiven. Even we in the New Testament can barely understand it. How can we understand the humiliation of God to become man? How can we understand what it is for the Son of God to take upon himself humanity and be born as an infant, to suffer the indignities of growing up as a human being? How can we understand the pain of crucifixion, the agony of the punishment that our sins deserves being poured out upon him, the hell that we will never experience? How can we understand a love that would do this in order for the Lord to speak comfort to us, but he speak it, he does. He not only speaks it to his people, he commands his people to speak it as well. And we are such rebellious creatures who replace the comfort of God with what we define as a comfortable life. That which we define for ourselves. There wasn't much comfort in the exile. There wasn't much comfort in Isaiah's day. We want a heaven on earth. Now, not the one promised at the second coming of the Lord. This has been a hard year. Many of us, most of us, all of us in this room have suffered in one way or the other. And seeing the world's counterfeit joy 
can make our losses seem all the more painful unless we rest in the message of Isaiah. There's something about this message that reveals that we need someone to come and say comfort, comfort. A comfort that doesn't defined by the world, a comfort that is defined by what God has done. Your warfare, Christian, has ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. You are not alone. You are gripped inextricably from in God's almighty hand, and nothing can separate you from the love that sent Christ to the cross. We rest in God's comfort. But secondly, we see we recognize God's glory. Having proclaimed the pardon of God in the face of exile, the Lord further describes the work He will do through the one that He will send to prepare the way. This passage portrays the Lord as uh, the visiting potentate that sends the harbinger uh, to arrange for his arrival. We've seen this in uh, Mark chapter 1, have we not, as we have looked at uh, the work of John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one that was sent before, uh, that uh, one that sent before the king to announce he is coming, get ready. So we see the Lord's preparation and the Lord's presentation. Look at verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, if you uh, look at different Bible versions, there's different ways of reading this. Uh, This translation follows the Septuagint and the way the New Testament describes this verse. Modern translations often uh, differ because they're following the Masoretic pointing, and we won't go into the the nuances of each uh, way. If you want to talk to me afterwards, I can explain exactly why uh, one is better than the other. I will just go with what we have because that's my way I, I roll this, But you get the idea of this verse. It is that one is coming, that the Lord is sending the voice that is crying, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. And we remember that the wilderness uh, from Mark has such a rich history. And when Isaiah is writing this, certainly is writing it to a people that know that history. That in a sense... Israel has to go back into the wilderness and come back into the land. So that's what the exile is. It's going back into a period of testing and being being brought back into the land. And in the wilderness, they are preparing themselves to enter into the Lord's blessing. And there is a leveling aspect to that. As you see in verse 4, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made plain, uh, the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. There's, there's a metaphor here of the removal of obstacles and anything that it would interrupt the entrance of the honored guest. The king is coming. Get ready. Get everything out of the way that would impede the entrance of the coming king. Imagine uh, someone that you would hold as an honored guest coming to visit you at your house. How would you prepare? Would you just clean the house? Would you do nothing? Would you arrange uh, the, uh, the furniture a certain way? Would you uh, keep the the uh, place clean of pollution? Would you uh, seek to 
stock the pantry and the refrigerator with all of the guests' favorite uh, drinks and entertainment and snacks? What would you do to ensure that this one had a fabulous visit? That is the sense in which Isaiah is saying, get ready, make ready for the coming of the king. If John's voice was calling for preparation, it meant that the glory was at hand. Look at verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. What is coming? What is appearing? It is the glory of the Lord. Now, when Isaiah is writing this in the the sense of exile, the glory of the Lord is them returning to the land, returning to the place, especially of Jerusalem, where the glory was seen in the temple. If you remember, after the exile, what's the first thing that people do when they come into the land? Well, generally the first thing. The first thing they do is rebuild the altar, rebuild the temple. Even before they rebuild the walls, they're rebuilding the temple. They're restoring the presence of the Lord in their midst because that's their identity. John in 1 John and John chapter 1 records this glory. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What Israel only saw as a dim view of their return to exile, their return to the place of glory in in the temple, was made more manifest when Jesus came. The actual glory of God come full of grace and truth. A glory appearing not just to Israel, but to all flesh. You see that in verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh, shall see it together. This was not fulfilled when just a temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem. It was fulfilled when Jesus came and that glory was given, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles and the whole world. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says, in Jerusalem and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. The glory of the Lord is seen in the manger. We have not only seen the glory of the Lord, but it also dwells in us. It is seen in the lives of his people. As Jesus will say, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine upon, uh, before men that they may see your good works and glorify uh, your Father which is within you. We have seen the glory of God. And we reflect the glory of God as his people. And this is certain, as we find it here in verse 5, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Isaiah puts this in here to establish the certainty that this will occur, that the glory will be seen, that it will be seen by all people. I want to speak to weary hearts for most of us might find ourselves in that situation. Some hearts have grown cold, indifferent to the power of the gospel, indifferent to the glory of the Lord. To them, the Lord charges them to repent and find amazement at the glory of the Incarnation. But for most of you who labor to glorify God, you might have grown discouraged over the coming days and year. And please hear me. You look at the calendar on your wall and look back at the year and see heartaches. 
and wonder if you have glorified God at all. But let me suggest something to you, that suffering and heartache is not proof that God has not used you nor glorified himself in the world. And sometimes it is just the reverse. After all, God was glorifying himself through the exile and bringing his people back. He was glorifying himself in John the Baptist, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Covenant. And you remember how John's life ended. And yet no one will argue that his life was not glorious, nor fulfilled the purpose of the forerunner. Listen to Paul when he talks about the way in which we glorify God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power of, may be of God and not of us. We are troubled at every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, yet not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Do you realize what Paul is saying there when he talks about the life of Jesus manifested in our bodies? Because what is Jesus? But what John one says, John chapter 1 says he is, he is the glory of the Son made manifest upon earth. And so when we, are when we are distressed and not perplexed, not in despair, not forsaken, not cast destroyed, bearing about the dying of the Lord Jesus, we are revealing his glory. We rest in God's comfort. We recognize God's glory. And finally, I want us to think about how we rely upon God's word. It naturally flows, does it not? From the very end, when he says, for the mouth of, the, of uh, verse 5, when Isaiah says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And then he goes on to talk about the certainty of that word. The certainty of the Lord's word. You see that in that which withers and that which remains. The introduction of the prophetic message has an interesting cast. A voice said, cry, verse 6. It repeats the voice of verse 3. The imperative to cry from verse 2. In this third prophetic message, Isaiah enters into a dialogue with an unknown person. The voice commands the prophet to cry, but the prophet Isaiah does not know what message is to he is to convey to his audience. He has received two messages so far, a message of, of exile and a message of comfort. What will be the message? And the content of the message appears in the answer to the, to the prophet's question. And he said, what shall I cry? All the flesh is grass. And all the goodliness thereof is the flower grass. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. What is the prophet to say? All flesh is grass. All men, all of you are grass. All of you are like grass. Grass withers, grass fades. You know what grass does. If you go, especially at this time of year, you go outside, you look at your grass, it doesn't look like much. It looks nasty and brown and withered, depending on what your grass is, but that's normally the case. You look at the trees, and you look at them, and they're just sticks, and you wonder, is there any life there? The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord, or the breath of the Lord, bloweth on it. The Spirit of the Lord, that hot wind, blows upon the people, and they wither and fade. The Lord's judgment is coming. 
But in contrast to that which withers, the Lord carves out an exception. In verse 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Unlike the grass, unlike the flower, unlike man, the sure word of prophecy never burns out. The ravages of time must make an exception to the word of the infinite. When the mouth of the Lord has spoken comfort, comfort will come. Yes, there is a reality of the exile. Yes, you people like grass will fade away and wither in the exile, but the promise of God will remain true. And the Lord bookends this prophecy with that personal note. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. In verse 8, the word of our God shall stand forever. The personal relationship between God and his people makes these prophecies words of comfort and hope. The Lord does not make abstract statements about the future that has no concern with the lives of his people. He doesn't tell you things about what is going to happen just because he feels like being a soothsayer. He tells them to his people because it matters to them. Because he is doing something good to them. Because he is blessing his people. But that brings up a question, does it not? Is the Lord your God? Do you have a personal relationship with him? The prophecy that we have looked at points to the person and work of Jesus, the one we celebrate during Christmas. He was the glory of God revealed to all. He is God the Son, become man, who lived a perfect life that we could not live, who died to pay the penalty of our sins that we could not suffer. The Lord intends and calls his family together. His own nation rejected him, and so have you from birth and by choice. But again today he appears in his glory to you. Again today you hear the promise of salvation in Jesus. Will you turn? Will you turn from sin and turn to God and make the Lord your God? For only in Jesus will you find hope and life. Will you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you repent and believe the gospel? Christian, our comfort comes from that which the word of God settles for us as the truth. We know nothing but Christ crucified. We preach nothing but Christ crucified. We preach nothing but the comfort of that baby. That meant that our iniquity was pardoned and that our warfare was accomplished. We see the glory of the Lord in that manger, the arrival of which was heralded by angels. We see the certainty that that baby and his work has fulfilled the promises of God and his word, which stands forever. We need that stability. We need that firm rock upon which to base all of our hopes when a world shifts. When, as today, little in our world seems stable. When we see so many people unable to grasp on anything that will give them a semblance of reliability. The problem is that anything other than God that you grab onto will only shake you more. We need the stability of not that which we grab onto, but that which takes a hold on us. 
We need this ability of the one who never lets us go. This week, comfort matters to us. And I hope as you spend time with your family and friends, perhaps you are expecting them to pour comfort into your wounded soul from this past week or year. Can I suggest to you that perhaps Isaiah is urging you to do the exact opposite? Can I suggest perhaps a different approach, that you read back at verse 40 and hear the Lord calling you and sending you comfort, comfort my people. Go out and be the one who comforts God's people. For those who surround you this week will need as much comfort as you do, and perhaps more. And the Lord sends people sends his people to comfort his people. As the Lord sent his prophets to his nation, he sends his people to comfort his people. And perhaps that someone this week will be you. This season, be the one who proclaims and gives comfort. Be the one who speaks the word of peace to others. The peace that is found in Scripture. The peace of the gospel to those who need to hear of salvation in Christ Jesus. The message of God's presence to those who feel alone. The the message of God's hope in those who lack it. The message of God's peace to those war-torn souls. As you have heard the peace of God in Jesus Christ today, share it with those around you. Let's pray together. O Lord, give us ears to hear your voice speaking comfort to us in your word. O Lord, anchor us in the gospel of Christ, that baby who was born to offer the sacrifice that turned away your wrath against our sin. Speak to us that our warfare is over. And in that peace, strengthen us to serve one another, to speak your comfort to wounded hearts, to be the peace they need. Encourage our hearts, for Jesus' sake. Amen.